You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to an emergency hybrid advisory opinions podcast. By emergency, I mean we're taping this on Thursday night, late after we have digested and uh, studied and scrutinized Scott, <laughs> husband of the pods, magnificent victory. Uh, by hybrid, I mean we already recorded a podcast. And so you know what we're going to do, listeners? We're slapping together the pre-decision podcast and the post-decision emergency podcast into one hybrid pod. And so here how it, here's how it's going to go. First half is going to be high-energy SCOTUS analysis um, with, I mean, I- extreme excitement and and. Then we're going to go to kind of a chill mailbag segment, (laughs) kind of a chill mailbag. In which you can sense my anxiety that we don't have a Supreme Court opinion. It's a real Frankenstein monsters of a podcast today. We apologize, but you know what? Y'all love emergency pods and we couldn't not deliver an emergency pod today. First question I feel like I'm getting the most though is what are you and Scott doing to celebrate? How are you taping a podcast when there should be like champagne flowing in your house? <laughs> no. Scott is in Austin with all of the legal eagles of Texas basically all in one place and they are sending me pictures of my husband outdoors with a glass of champagne. The weather looks warm. He's not wearing a coat. I'm so annoyed right now. Uh, You know, and here's why you should be double annoyed, Sarah, because not only are you not celebrating a Supreme Court victory with your husband right now, you're actually doing the service of broadcasting his victory to legal scholars, to lawyers, to judges, to business leaders who listen to this podcast coast to coast. Yeah, it was like insult to injury also that... At 2.25 today, I get a text from the husband of the pod, OSHA stay granted. I text back, OMG, with all the Gs. The second I hit send on that text, the baby wakes up from his nap. I Mm. can't even pull up the opinion at all because, of course, I think I've mentioned we don't have childcare right now because of COVID. So uh, anyway... It, there's like, it's a lot of insult to injury around here. Well, okay. You, we need to dive in to the yeah, opinions. Let's do it. We need to, but you did raise a question for me. Is OMG spelled with a bunch of G's? Wouldn't be that be like OMG? And shouldn't it be OMG? You're showing your age, David. Obviously, it's not phonetic. <laughs> You say the G and you hold the G sound. Okay. You're just wrong. Okay. All right. Please ask your age appropriate children how you spell (laughs) OMG. All right. All right. I now know. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Okay, So breaking down this opinion, top line, right? We have procurium opinion. Let's just do the OSHA one first. We'll save CMS, the healthcare workers like we did last time where we then gave it the shortest of shrifts. It got like four minutes shrift. Um, okay. OSHA case. Per curiam opinion up top. 
Concurrence from the three, Gorsuch, Thomas Alito. Descent from the three, Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor. It was a 3-3-3 opinion, David. Yep. (laughs) And look, I think, again, big picture, they decided it on two issues, which kind of merged together. And it's going to be a little hard to, to, you know, get them apart. But major question doctrine and that that this was simply not a occupational hazard. Those were different issues, but they merged together in the reasoning somewhat in the per curiam, the concurrence from the three is all major question doctrine and how to think about major question doctrine because the per curiam never uses the term major question doctrine, even though it cites the case where the term major question doctrine is used. Uh, And then of course the dissent, very predictable and just saying like, yeah, this is an occupational hazard. The fact that OSHA hasn't had to do this before is because the pandemic is something we've never had to deal with before. I thought all of the opinions were very honest assessments. There wasn't any sort of disingenuous legal shenanigans going on. Um, But I think it's worth walking through all three. So what's your top line? My top line is it's actually hard for me to talk about one without also talking about the other. Um, because I think they're, when you read them together, you really can get a better understanding of what is going on here. And essentially what's, here, here's the way I put it. So for listeners who are not up to speed on what happened fully, this was 6-3 staying the OSHA mandate. It was 5-4 uh, permitting the CMS, this is the medical healthcare workers in federally funded uh, Medicare, Medicaid funded healthcare, permitting that vaccine mandate to go into effect. So my top line goes something like this. This was straight up conventional status quo administrative law. And by that, what I mean is if you look at the OSHA mandate, for the OSHA mandate to be enforceable, you would have to grant OSHA more discretion than a fair reading of the statute in line with current administrative law jurisprudence permits. So you would have to sort of say, this is special, the pandemic is special, so we're gonna give more leeway to OSHA. And for CMS, what you had was classic, normal agency deference, and that cut for CMS And because classic normal agency deference still doesn't get you there with OSHA, it cut against OSHA, if that makes sense. So this was like a status quo. Both of them were status quo opinions, which makes some sense in an emergency docket context, because is the court going to, are the institutionalists in particular in the court going to want to move the ball substantially one way or the other on administrative law and an emergency docket case? I don't think so. That's my top line, Sarah. All right, so let's dive in a little. First, who wrote the per curiam? Obviously, we don't know. It's an unsigned opinion. Um, We can assume, obviously, it's by one of the justices in the majority, but I will tell you a little inside baseball. Generally, in one of these emergency cases, the justice who oversees that circuit would draft the opinion. In this case, 
that is Justice Kavanaugh. And it actually fits with everything else we know, right? He doesn't write the concurrence. He's not one of the three concurring. So he's one of the, you know, three most available to write the per curiam. It also sounded Justice Kavanaugh for a variety of reasons we can kind of get into later. Uh, but let me give you the case for why we know nothing about who wrote the opinion, which is, yes, this was sort of technically still on the emergency docket, but I found it very interesting that it posted on the part of the Supreme Court website's opinions of the court instead of opinions relating to orders. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's all to say, like, 51% chance that Justice Kavanaugh wrote the PC, but, you know, fun times had by all. So starting at the beginning, uh, I'm going to quote liberally uh, at times here. Hopefully you can tell the difference. The secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. The act that OSHA cites for its authority, says, uh, the opinion of the PC says, empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. And so this is going to set up the whole argument for the workplace part. So although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard in most. COVID-19 can and does spread at home, in schools, during sporting events, and everywhere else that people gather. That kind of universal risk is no different from the day-to-day -day dangers that all face from crime, air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases. Permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory without clear congressional authorization. Uh, that's the ball game right there. Yeah. Yeah. That to me, I, I was actually trying to explain this to my, uh, to my son, uh, who's a junior in college and wanting to go to law school. And I was trying to explain why, if this is occupational, health and safety and health why a vaccine mandate wouldn't fit under the health category just under sort of health is health right and that is is it is the health issue coming from the occupation or is the health issue just essentially coming from life or from you know the uh, you know and i thought it was uh, quite well stated in in the opinion is this something that's just sort of part of the atmospheric atmospheric risk that we all incur from daily life and it also occurs at the workplace versus this risk is generated from the workplace um and i think that's a very helpful distinction and also why the court left open the possibility that there are workplaces where the nature of the work might be so distinct that it generates a specific COVID health risk attached with the work that's specific to the workplace as opposed to just part of living in the in a in a time of pandemic. This is where I thought the dissent's argument was at its weakest, actually. So reading from the dissent, um, uh, consistent with Congress's directives, OSHA has long regulated risks that are both that arise both inside and outside of the workplace. For example, OSHA has issued and applied to nearly all workplaces rules combating risks of fire, faulty electrical installations, and inadequate emergency exits. 
even though the dangers prevented by those rules arise not only in workplaces, but in many physical facilities. Yeah, that actually, to me, proves the difference here because there's not a generalized fire risk everywhere you go. The risk of that fire is due to that building that you're in. It is a specific risk by by the occupation in the sense that like when you report to work, you report to a building and they need to make sure that that building's not going to catch on fire. Exact same thing with the electrical installation and the emergency exits. That's all building specific, therefore specific to your workplace. Very different from a communicable disease. And the majority uh, takes that on, says the dissent contends that OSHA's mandate is comparable to a fire or sanitation regulation imposed by the agency. But a vaccine mandate is strikingly unlike the workplace regulations that OSHA has typically imposed. A vaccine, after all, cannot be undone at the end of the workday. Contrary to the dissent's contention, imposing a vaccine mandate on 84 million Americans in response to a worldwide pandemic is simply not part of what the agency was built for. Okay, yeah, I I agree with that, except there, they're not building in the or test part. Correct, you can't undo the vaccine, but as we've talked about plenty, it's not a vaccine mandate, it's a vaccine or test mandate. Now you do have to then get a medical test uh, potentially on your own dime and on your own time if you don't get vaccinated. But to say that like that's something that cannot be undone at the end of the workday, I actually think they have a good answer to that, the majority, but I wanted them to take the fire electrical installation argument a little more head on. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. In the when as soon as I heard read the fire and the electrical, what you're talking about is a risk and a danger generated from generated specifically from the workplace. Right. That is you you don't have that risk if you're not at work. Whereas that's from not that the fire. Same. There might right, be a different exactly. fire, but fire isn't the risk. It's that fire. That fire. Yes, exactly. Whereas if I'm not at work, I have risk of COVID that might be greater at home, depending on the home search circumstances or given or might be greater at a movie theater or might be greater at a basketball arena or might be there's and it's just all a COVID. lot and it's all COVID. Exactly. I think that this sentence is, is key. Uh, and it's one I put in our, our little slack when we were going back and forth. OSHA's indiscriminate approach fails to account for this crucial distinction between occupational risk and risk more generally. And accordingly, the mandate takes on the character of a general public health measure. That is, and and as I said in our little conversation, that that word indiscriminate approach, you know what a synonym for that is? <laughs> Blunderbuss. <laughs> Blunderbuss, yes. So I actually felt yes. that the whole procurium opinion was largely the Ben Flowers, the Ohio Solicitor General's argument written out. It was far more Ohio than husband of the pod. Interestingly, I think the concurrence was more husband of the pod. Um, And again, if you compare it to the CMS opinion, the health workers under Medicaid and Medicare um, opinion, which was upheld, I do think that part of this is um, we are not going to allow without very specific congressional authorization, a vaccine or testing uh, thing to have a job in this country. But we will to have this job this job being healthcare workers. 
That's a specific job with a specific need that's related to COVID-19. But the other one is just having a job in this country. That is that just too much. And also with the CMS regulations, different regulations that say different things in pursuit of different interests. And so they, as we said on this podcast several times, they're very different cases and don't be surprised at different outcomes. And, you know, I think that that's, so when I saw the, the, the outcome where you had OSHA stay granted, CMS stay removed, um, then, you know, it made perfect sense. It made perfect sense. And when you get to CMS, I think you'll understand how it made perfect sense and including how the existence of this, of the pandemic cut. So what's interesting about this is the pandemic, the fact that this was taking place in a pandemic, that this awful pandemic where more than 800,000 Americans um, have died, did factor in these decisions. It, these, these cases were not decided with the pandemic in nobody's mind. And, and I think that's a very interesting, but the way that it cut is very interesting. And here, here's the way that it cut. And this is in the CMS case. This is a quote. The challenges posed by a global pandemic do not allow a federal agency to exercise power that Congress has not conferred upon it. That's OSHA case. That's the OSHA case. So what they're saying is we recognize the pandemic. We recognize how serious it is. But the existence of a pandemic does not mean that the law means something different now. And then there's the second sentence. At the same time, and here's the institutionalism leaking in, Sarah. Such unprecedented circumstances provide no grounds for limiting the exercise of authorities the agency has long recognized to have. That's CMS. So what they're saying in CMS is, if you thought we might use this case law to kind of further pull back agency discretion, not during a pandemic. <laughs> not, not during a pandemic. We're not going to do that during a pandemic. So it's interesting to me, and this is sort of the institutional, prudential, equitable side of all of this. That's where it fell out. It was, okay, we're not, we're going to be, we're going to grant agencies discretion that's traditional. And we're not going to, we're not going to trim that back during the pandemic. But here's what we're also not going to do. We're not going to give them more discretion than is traditional. We're not going to give them more discretion than the statute gives them. That's that's how I feel like the, those two sentences really work together to explain both cases. And that's a good segue into the concurrence from the OSHA case, um, because it was a weird concurrence in some ways. The concurrence at no point disagrees with the per curiam. There's no daylight. It really looks like they just wanted to use the term major question doctrine, <laughs> which is great. So the the concurrence starts with the very question that husband of the pod said this case was about. The central question we face today is colon, who decides? So when I say that the PC is Ben Flowers, the concurrence is husband of the pod. Um, just kidding. It's definitely Justice Gorsuch. I'm not taking anything away from Justice Gorsuch. <laughs> Ghostwritten. Ghostwritten. Yeah, yeah no. right? No. Okay. So reading a little bit here. Uh, the court is not a public health authority, but it is charged with resolving disputes about which authorities possess the power to make the laws that govern us under the Constitution and the laws of the land. Cough, cough. We're looking at you, Justice Sotomayor. 
um, it did not have the cough cough. Uh, Not only must the federal government properly invoke a constitutionally enumerated source of authority to regulate in this area or any other, it must also act consistently with the Constitution's separation of powers. And when it comes to that obligation, the court has established at least one firm rule. Quote, we expect Congress to speak clearly if it wishes to assign an executive agency decisions of vast economic and political significance. Noting that Congress has adopted several pieces of legislation since the pandemic started, none of which afforded OSHA or any federal agency the authority to issue a vaccine mandate. Indeed, the concurrence notes a majority of the Senate even voted to disapprove OSHA's regulation. Uh, It seems, too, that the agency, this is, by the way, a line like buried in a paragraph, but it's interesting. It seems, too, that the agency pursued its regulatory initiative only as a legislative, quote, workaround. Wah, wah, wah. Something that actually was not brought up a whole lot, but that everyone, I think, kind of feels in the background of this case. And so many of these executive power cases, whether it's DACA, DAPA, census, anything else, you couldn't get Congress to act when you wanted them to. They wouldn't pass the legislation. You don't have the majorities. They won't get rid of the filibuster. Whatever the problem is, the social pressure is built and built. And so you decided to like, I don't know, let's see if this flies. Um, And also, are you, this made me wonder how much they're on Twitter. (laughs) Um, Because uh, Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, tweeted or retweeted um, a tweet that said this, OSHA doing this vax mandate as an emergency workplace safety rule is the ultimate workaround for the federal government to require vaccinations. Oh, I mean, they're quoting, they're, they're quoting someone else quoting that. Mm-hmm. There's a citation <laughs> for the workaround oh, oh. quote. <laughs> uh. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it came up. Um, okay. So then justice Gorsuch, always the professorial type asks a rhetorical question. Why does the major questions doctrine matter? (laughs) He'll tell you. It ensures that the national government's power to make the laws that govern us remain where Article One of the Constitution says it belongs, with the people's elected representatives. If the administrative agencies seek to regulate the daily lives and liberties of millions of Americans, the doctrine says, they must at least be able to trace that power to a clear grant of authority from Congress. And then for our law students listening, he does a nice, you know, side-by-side of non-delegation doctrine versus major question doctrine. Oddly, I will tell you, I did not think it was the best explanation of the difference. And there must be a reason, because to me, there's a very simple explanation of the difference between the two. Non-delegation doctrine is that Congress can't give OSHA the power. Major question doctrine is that Congress didn't give OSHA the power. I could write this in one sentence. Maybe like just a semicolon is all I need. Um, He goes into a little more detail almost merging the two, which I think is intentional, but this next paragraph kind of tells you why. (laughs) On the one hand, OSHA claims the power to issue a nationwide mandate on a major question, but cannot trace its authority to do so to any clear congressional mandate. On the other hand, 
if the statutory subsection the agency cites really did endow OSHA with the power it asserts, that law would likely constitute an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority. So why do the two feel a little less distinct from Justice Gorsuch's pen? Because I'm not sure he wants them to be all that distinct. He wants this to be in one ball because major question doctrine had previously, people were pulling it into that ambiguity area that the terms need to be ambiguous before you can apply major question doctrine. And Justice Gorsuch, the purpose of his concurrence here, again, co-signed by Thomas and Alito, is no, no, non-delegation, sorry, major question doctrine really um, is is in the same family, lives in the same house as non-delegation doctrine. Your ambiguity doctrine, whatever that may be, it, uh, not this. Major question doctrine is its own big monster thing like non-delegation doctrine. Uh, so long live major question doctrine. It has arisen in a major way for the first time. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely has. Uh, other thing, other another couple of things of note. One is, um, I think hidden within this, well, not really hidden, just right there within this, is all is the notation that basically, if you're a state government, have at it. Yeah. Um, now that's not to say that the that you know any kind of vaccine mandate risk crafted in any particular way is going to pass Supreme Court muster. But Gorsuch here says there is no question that state and local authorities possess considerable power to regulate public health. They enjoy the general power of governing, including all sovereign powers envisioned by the Constitution and not specifically vested in the federal government. So this is what we were talked about last week or yeah, no, on Monday when we talked about the police power subject. That's what you're talking about, the general power of governing, that police power. And so there's pretty clearly a, a roadmap here for state governments if they want to implement mandates. And I thought that that was interesting that he went at, it was a little bit of a civics lesson. And I think we know why that civics lesson was given uh, was because of it. I think perhaps because of that police power exchange with Justice Sotomayor. So I thought that that was very interesting um, that he that that was the, in, um, that that was in uh, his concurrence, this sort of civics lesson that acknowledged the power of the state. And the other thing, going back to the majority, it's interesting that um, the the procurium opinion said noted that there might be other workplace environments like meat packing, and they actually used the example of meat packing to contrast it with, say, a lifeguard, and because. I think it is the case there are certain circumstances where you could say that there are particular circumstances and factors about this particular workplace that enhance the danger of COVID far above and beyond or significantly or materially above and beyond the background danger of COVID just from living in, in these United States. But that wasn't the mandate. It wasn't aimed at those jobs that are particularly dangerous. I don't know if there's, you know, just to make one up, Sarah, if you're going to talk about one where perhaps the nature of the workplace could, could create a danger. If you're like a halitosis tester, you know, <laughs> <laughs> could what you imagine? A terrible job. 
A 100 wow. person in a 100 person company smelling people's breath. Oh. Uh, I can't, can't even begin to imagine. But anyway, if you have a workplace that places people persistently in close quarters that dramatically increases the risk of the particular illness, then, you know, maybe you've got a better chance. And I would say you definitely have a better chance, but that gets us all the way back to that blunderbuss point, which is, well, you had employers that were like that in this mandate, and you had a lot of employers that were not like that at all. Hence the lack of discrimination, hence the blunderbuss. I will say, let me read you part of the dissent that was interesting in part because it was, it felt very textual. Um, uh, OSHA has the, has power only to protect employees from workplace hazards. But as just explained, that is exactly what the standard does. And the act requires nothing more. Contra the majority, it is indifferent, the statute, is indifferent to whether a hazard in the workplace is also found elsewhere. The statute generally charges OSHA with, quote, assuring so far as possible safe and healthful work conditions. That provision authorizes regulation to protect employees from all hazards present in the workplace, or at least all hazards in part created by conditions there. It does not matter whether those hazards also exist beyond the workplace wall. Um, that is interesting to me because the basics of the dissent versus the majority are Congress didn't specifically give OSHA this power, if you're the majority. And the dissent is, Congress didn't not give OSHA this power. And really, you again have both sides arguing over the text. Not Congress's intent, by the way. Nobody's looking at the congressional record. Uh, big picture, this is another one of those cases that you just see as a huge win for legal conservative philosophy pre-common good constitutionalism. <laughs> um, if OSHA's standard is far-reaching, applying to many millions of American workers, it is no more than reflects the scope of the crisis, says the dissent. It is perverse, given these circumstances, to read the Act's grant of emergency powers in the way the majority does, as constraining OSHA from addressing one of the gravest workplace hazards in the agency's history. Uh, the standard protects untold numbers of employees from a danger especially prevalent in workplace conditions. It lies at the core of OSHA's authority. It is part of what the agency was built for. Um, interesting, given how breathless and agitated the justices seemed during the argument, I will say that the dissent, to me, did not read that way. Maybe it's because it was Breyer, no. um, but it, it was a very calm, well-reasoned, here's our case, we disagree, we dissent. I, and, I, and I think you might have seen more urgency if the CMS case had come out differently. Ooh, so speaking of CMS, let's transition to that a little. 5-4 with uh, Barrett as the four with the conservatives, the chief and Kavanaugh with the three liberals. Um, the first, I believe, 5-4 decision we've seen Barrett going that direction. And if you remember in talking about our 3-3-3 court, despite the fact that the OSHA case was 3-3-3, we said we, we don't know yet what kind of justice Barrett's going to be and where she's going to fall on that institutionalist axis, regardless of where she falls in the conservative axis. We think she's a quite conservative justice, but that institutionalist axis could um, 
put her with the chief and Justice Kavanaugh. So very interesting to see her on the CMS case on that side of the ledger. Uh, David, <laughs> speaking of blunderbuss. Yeah. I found another word that I didn't know. <laughs> I like on this podcast how I just admit how I don't know words. I'd like to say I got an 800 verbal on my SAT. So I do know words, <laughs> but obviously I don't know as many words as some people. Um, I'm reading now from Justice Thomas's dissent. The government has not made a strong showing that this agglomeration of statutes authorizes any such rule. And I said, agglomeration? In the context, it looks like conglomeration would work just as well. What does the word agglomeration mean as to be distinguished from conglomeration? And this took me down a heck of a rabbit hole, David. I, I, Interesting. Don't, I don't feel like people do really know the difference. Let me read you some differences that I've read. Agglomeration is a collection of unrelated items. Conglomeration is a collection of related items. That felt really good. I was like, oh, that's very clear, actually. And I love agglomeration. And that can move into my everyday usage. But that was from like a random website that's like one of those up or down votes. It's basically Urban Dictionary for big words. <laughs> so that's not an authority of any kind. And when I went to Merriam-Webster, uh, this distinction is not clear at all. Merriam-Webster, agglomeration, the process of collecting in mass, a heap of, or cluster of usually disparate elements, kind of close, a large, densely, and contiguously populated area consisting of a city and its suburbs. So I was with some friends and I was like, does anyone feel like they have a good handle on the difference between agglomeration and conglomeration? And a person walking by said, uh, sounds like they just needed a cinnamon, a, sounds like they just needed a synonym because they're using some other word down the way. I swear to you, David. Okay, let me read you the sentence again. The government has not made a strong showing that this agglomeration of statutes authorizes any such rule. Two paragraphs down. The government has not made a strong showing that this hodgepodge of provisions authorizes a nationwide vaccine mandate. Oh, Changes funny. my whole view of the whole thing. This is what happens <laughs> when you only have a week. It hasn't even been a week, has it? Almost ex seven days. This is what happens when you only have seven days to write. Some clerk didn't catch that. They have the same sentence in there, except in one, it's hodgepodge of provisions. And in another, it's agglomeration. And I don't know which one's the clerk and which one's the justice, but I'm fascinated. <laughs> Sarah, that's a rabbit hole. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Peppa, I had Peppa Pig playing. The brisket was content for a few moments. And I just went, I dove right down the hole. No, I like it. I like it. That's... That's what it's distinctive about advisory opinions. You're going to get 20 minutes on the opinion and 40 minutes on agglomeration. And it's going to be awesome. I'm going to be insufferable when Scott gets home because in my everyday, like, <laughs> what do you want for dinner? Somehow the word agglomeration and blunderbuss are both going to be used. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So more on CMS. So, um, what I thought was interesting about CMS, it, I think there's a there is a uh, there are a couple of big distinctions here. One is the 
what we're dealing with with CMS is nothing that really even looks like police power in the way that the OSHA mandate could look a lot like police power or a general public health measure. This is this is a condition attached to funding. No, it's much closer to highway funding connected to the drinking age. Right, exactly. Um, there is a public interest here that is is very strong, connected precisely to funding, connected to a series of regulations that are really expansive uh, about the way in which a um, healthcare workers do their jobs. And so that was something that was was interesting to me was uh, when you're starting to talk about the um, when you're starting to talk about these regu- the labyrinth of regulations go- that govern here, you're talking about all kinds of statutory re- or all kinds of regulations that are, are aimed at preventing infection. So uh, hospital employees have to wear gloves, sterilize instruments, wash their way- hands in certain ways and at certain intervals. And none of those things were cha- uh, challenged. Now, the other interesting thing was, well, if you say, well, then vaccination is a step way, you know, well beyond the, uh, the scope of you know, the normal regulatory framework, they, inter- they had an interesting paragraph here. Vaccination requirements are a common feature in the provision of healthcare in America. Healthcare workers around the country are ordinarily required to be vaccinated for diseases such as hepatitis B, influenza, and measles, mumps, and rubella. As the secretary explained, these pre-existing state requirements are a major reason why the agency has not previously adopted vaccine mandates as a condition of participation. So in other words, the reason why CMS hadn't done this before is workers were already under an array of vaccine mandates. This is a new disease and the state law, state regulations that would fill that hole, close that gap might not necessarily exist. And I think that when you look at it in this circumstances, a regulation attached to, to money um, that these regulations have traditionally empowered a high degree of control over the way in which workers um, limit exposure to infection and that the hole that had previously existed regarding vaccination had been largely closed by state and local uh, regulations, this decision makes a lot of sense. Um, and it you can begin to see how it is different in kind from the OSHA case. It's it's a it is just a fundamentally different case in many ways. It is, although I did find it to be side i.e. that a lot of the theory on the agency power side was well that agency's been using a lot of power. So isn't that just a perverse incentive for agencies to try to expand their power as quickly as possible so that way they can point back and say, no, we've been doing this for years because part of the OSHA problem was they'd never done anything like this. Okay, so what OSHA learned from this is that we need to do more stuff and see if we can get away with it. Yeah, that's that. you raise a very good point there and that's where I think the pandemic came in. Okay, that's where I think... You know, when you say we've been talking about these cases previously to say, look, they're going to be decided on the basis of the interpretation of these relevant statutes. And where are you going to, where, in what circumstances are you going to start to pare back 
agency discretion when agency discretion has been exercised to a to a pretty considerable extent for a pretty long time, as in CMS. And I could easily imagine, I was, I was actually, I was talking to um, another attorney this afternoon. We we're going back and forth about the CMS case. And th- his conclusion, which I think was uh, interesting and probably correct, is that if you actually took the four dissenters and Justice uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh they, this I think CMS might be six three against CMS, but for the pandemic. That that's how I think the pandemic played in here, is they weren't going to allow the pandemic to extend the reach of a statute and a regulatory regime, but they were not going to start to pull back the reach and discretion of an agency in the middle of the pandemic. I know I've said that before, but I really, if I, if I had to say, why are, why are uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh departing from the other four on this case? I just keep going back to that idea and that, and that notion. And of course we don't have Roberts or Kavanaugh, like their writing under their names on any of this, which is interesting as well to the point that technically on the OSHA one, we don't know whether they're in the majority or the scent. One or the other could actually have not been in the majority, but just not written a separate dissent and not joined with the three dissenters. And we would never know that. A small point, but and I a very unlikely point to me, but goes to the fact that, like, yeah, it would have been nice to see like just Roberts and Kavanaugh. We just want you to tell us how you see these two interacting, like the play in the joints between the two, frankly. Um, no doubt, I think we will down the road because of course, as we've said many times, this was on an emergency posture. It's not the end of either of these cases. They go back. The only thing the court has said is that they believe what the likelihood is of success on the merits in either case, not actually the success of the merits in either case. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I thought the dissent scored some points in CMS. Um, I thought justice Thomas's dissent did a pretty good job of showing, wait a minute, these regulations that have been promulgated have been promulgated under some pretty vague, with some pretty vague statutory grants. So the the CMS has really taken this broad language and run with it. And, you know, if you're going to apply major questions doctrine, if you're going to look at, if shouldn't Congress speak clearly, if it's going to delegate a big chunk of power, it scored a lot of points in that regard, and that's why I think that the idea that this is a stay, it's preliminary, where the equitable kind of um, analysis can much more come into play, I think that's why two peeled away, was the much more in the equitable side of this. How very Y-axis institutionalist of them. Yes, Yes, exactly. So it would not surprise me, Sarah. Here's what would not surprise me. Uh, It would not surprise me if, let's say, this case finally works its way up completely on the merits in 18 months or two years, and the course of the pandemic is maybe very different at that point in time, and the balance of the equities regarding that level of discretion begin to change, it wouldn't surprise me if this outcome reverses itself wouldn't shock me. Um, 
might surprise me a little bit, wouldn't shock me. Um, think I'm crazy? Mm, usually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David. That, I think, was a good emergency podcast. It's going to make a very long Frankenstein Monsters podcast. But you know what? Our podcast saves lives, as you're about to find out. Well, this is this is going to be an interesting podcast uh, because we're going to we don't have a lot of really cool cases to talk about. In fact, we don't have any cool cases to talk about. There was a Supreme Court opinion that came out today and it began like this. This case concerns retirement benefits due under the Social Security Act for a retired military technician dual status. Close I stopped tab. reading at that point. <laughs> I'm sure that's very important to actually a lot of people, but it's not to us. That's the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's just the truth. So with all due apologies to Mr. David Babcock, um, I'm going to, we're just going to pass on that. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about your some questions, some listener questions. And you've got some good ones. But before we get to the good listener questions, I, at the risk of just absolute ridiculous self-promotion, yeah. Sarah, can you explain how this podcast saved a human life? It did. Um, I was very skeptical when I saw the subject line, the long podcast saved my life, but I thought it was metaphorical, maybe, you know, <laughs> just like, oh, it saved me. Ah, your words inspired me. But no, it was literal. So I'm just going to read this uh, from Caleb, not legendary producer Caleb, legendary listener Caleb. Your latest podcast ran one hour and 25 minutes long. And David, you and I, we try not to do podcasts that long. We try to respect our listeners' time, but we thought because of the argument, and the argument was four hours long, it actually was respecting our listeners' time to, to dive in a little. So it was an hour and 25 minutes long. Had it been four minutes shorter, I would have spent this morning covered in third-degree burns, or worse. Let me explain. <laughs> Last night, I was outside my apartment complex when I saw a large bonfire at our apartment fire pit. There was no one attending it, and it seemed like a perfect place to listen to the latest Advisory Opinions podcast. I sat by the fire and noticed a bottle of what seemed like lemonade on the stool next to the flames. I planned on using that lemonade bottle to put the fire out when the podcast was over. With four minutes left on the podcast, a couple came and sat next to the fire. They were the ones who started it and had returned now after their dinner. I started to leave when the man, beer in one hand, picked up... Uh, uh, sorry, yes, picked up the lemonade bottle and poured it over the fire. The fire erupted, growing three or four times the original size. I screamed, whoa, what is that? <laughs> I'm sure listeners can guess. To which the man, beer in one hand, responded, gasoline. Had the podcast <laughs> been four minutes shorter, I would have taken that gasoline bottle, which was left next to the fire without a cap, by the way, and carefully poured the contents of it onto the fire. No one pours anything on a fire from far away, so I would have likely gotten very close to the flames as to have the most accuracy with the lemonade bottle. This would have inevitably led to a large explosion and likely a hospital trip. Truthfully, advisory opinion saves lives. I expect nothing less from the flagship podcast. I am sure the Dispatch podcast has never saved anyone from such a trauma before. Take that, Jonah. That's <laughs> one of my favorite emails that we have ever received. <laughs> because he's right. I mean, he's right. Yeah. Think about it. How many times have you put out a fire where you've had a, a bottle of water 
you know, maybe it's smoldering, you've got the coals, and you get close and right over the top of it, right over the top, and that's gasoline. That's not even lighter fluid. Like lighter fluid, at least, is a more controlled kind of explosion, but gasoline, my goodness. So, well, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I feel pretty good about us right now. <laughs> As you should. All right. We, we have questions. Yeah. So interestingly, this question, the first one, which is, uh, I thought so much fun when I started looking into it is also from a Caleb. Ah. Also not legendary producer, Caleb and not legendary listener, Caleb, (laughs) different Caleb. Um, I was listening to the oral argument in the OSHA vaccine mandate while working this afternoon, and it finished with the hitting of a gavel. This made me wonder, where does the use of the gavel come from? Why don't they just say the case is submitted and then get up and leave? Are they legally required to use a gavel such that a decision or adjournment is only official once the crack of the gavel sounds? I genuinely know nothing beyond the fact that I kind of wish I had a gavel of my own. Well, Caleb, if you were an 18-month-old living in my house, you would have a gavel of your own. Uh, It would be a very, very small gavel, and it would say Supreme Court on it, and then you would use it to bang on everything. So one (laughs) might imagine that perhaps the gavel was just a stick that toddlers used and then adults continued using, but that is not the case. The history of the gavel is nothing short of fascinating and a bit mysterious, David. Yeah. So... Gavel has always been a legal term. The earliest references from around 725 AD are to gavel kind. And I'm going to read here from an academic paper from Australia. That was a system of fealty and land tenure, then operative in certain parts of what would eventually become England. Uh, It was not until much later, however, and far away from the historic roots of the common law that the word would start to take on the meaning it has today. But the precise etymology remains a mystery. Uh, I'm going to get back to that in a second. The contemporary gavel's roots are most commonly attributed to America. That's going to turn out to be quite true. Where the term begins to appear in reference to a hammer or mallet wielded by some figure of authority around 1860, according again to the Australians, uh, before becoming associated so universally with judges like it is today. Worth noting, the gavel is kind of everywhere, of course. It's the Supreme Court, but both houses of Congress also use it, uh, and it's all over TV. Now, you will not find them in courts or legislatures in other similarly situated countries, the UK, India, Australia. But um, it's not just our like legal dramas that have gone worldwide that have created everyone sort of knowing what a gavel is. In fact, there was a gavel on uh, the bench at Nuremberg, which is like a fun little really? trivia okay. fact that you can use with your friends. Uh, So let's go back to the etymology issue. It appears um, that basically, okay, back in the beginning of the country, before the internet, I suppose, George Washington, (laughs) Ben Franklin, I'm now taking this from a different academic paper written in America. um, They were all members of the Masons, a fraternal organization, it had taken off in Europe in the 1700s, but jumped across the pond and like really took off here. Talk about gasoline. A professional, uh, a way for professional types to pass the time before golf took over, as this writer says. <laughs> 
the Masons were big on symbolism and rituals, as any Dan Brown book will kind of fill you in on if you need more. Uh, but they really traced their roots to the Stoneworkers Guild of the Middle Ages. Perhaps you can see where this is going. The Masons, therefore, would use what would amount to like a mallet that you would have used to hit hot iron with. And that became the gavel because they were super into like stuff they thought, you know, stone workers would have used in the Middle Ages. That is interesting. That so is interesting. That's how we believe the gavel became used first in Masonic lodges. But then because like George Washington, Ben Franklin, all these people who were in power at their Masonic lodge, it transfers over into American high forms of government, legal, congressional, and then it transfers over into TV drama. <laughs> That's fascinating. So no, you do not need to bang the gavel in order for anything officially to be done. No, no, it's just a habit. It's just a habit. <laughs> it's a habit and a tradition, um, which this is absolutely, um, well, it's not entirely off topic, but I really had no idea what Freemasonry was at all for most of my life. And I'm, and it's been so long since I've read about it that I still not quite sure what it is. But I do remember being absolutely captivated by part of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, where one of the main characters dives into Freemasonry and Tolstoy, Tolstoy spent a bunch of time talking about it. And that's one thing that is great about some of these really huge old novels. Um, they just go off on a digression. Like, and <laughs> it is can be fascinating. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Unabridged Les Miserables. It is it is not just a novel, it is a discourse on contemporary French politics and French in and the Battle of Waterloo. I mean But also what a normal day in someone's life would have been like. That's oh, why yeah. I sort of like some of the British ones, although I'm still confused on what time they were going to bed. Like I, are the times wrong? What time are they having dinner? Because if they're not using the same times that we are, like they were staying up really late for some of these dances, you know, like middle <laughs> March, for instance, which is sort of a discourse on what we would sort of consider middle income England, sort of upper middle class, maybe England, um, and a little bit rural, you know, not London, not Jane Austen types, uh, all the time. Um, like why are you up so late? Yeah. <laughs> Two, three in the morning? That's a lot of wax you're burning, a lot of oil, et cetera. That's just expensive. You know what? I guarantee you that one of our listeners is an expert on the daily life habits and schedule of a middle-class British family in the 19th century. So please send us an email. Yeah. And they're having dinner super late, but that means I think they're having like, it's a whole second. I think there's a whole nother meal because I can't keep straight supper. I've even listened to an etymology podcast um, something rhymes with purple, which was recommended to me by an AO listener. So here's me recommending to AO listeners a podcast that was recommended to me by an AO listener. Something rhymes <laughs> with purple. It's these two British folks, uh, and they talked about the etymology of supper, which obviously comes from to sup, um, and sort of where all that came from. But like the meals refer to different things over there, and it's been so lost in translation over here. I I remain a bit confused. All right, next question. Well, this was a question from me. If you remember, uh, the term blunderbuss came up at the argument and we discussed 
that you knew what a blunderbuss was, but that uh, I had at best only heard it as an adjective and didn't know that it was a noun. And I was like, how did Ben Flowers, the Ohio Solicitor General, like what, is he just watching a lot of Looney Tunes and then Googling, hey, what's that thing they're holding? (laughs) Well, thankfully, I got a couple emails about this uh, and perhaps um, some inside information. Uh, It came up in a moot. And that's, uh, he, I guess, came up with it at the moot, but nevertheless, everyone was like, ah, yes, perfect. But I am also told on good authority, perhaps from people in that moot, that they also did not know that it was a noun referring to that gun. They also just knew it as an adjective and that it was a good adjective, but didn't know the full like etymological history of the adjective, a blunderbuss approach. Interesting. So I've actually thought about this blunderbuss thing because I've actually used that in exactly that way in legal argument going back for years. And I just thought, you know, a lot of lawyers, especially lawyers who come up like I did, I did constitutional law. um, But for many, much of my early practice was in state court using state common law in state common law has you're reading an awful lot of 19th century cases early 20th century cases. And so running uh, running across a term like blunderbuss is completely normal. And it's often also how lawyers will sometimes it seem to have almost anachronistic language on occasion is because you would not believe, especially if you're working in state in, in state courts, how much 19th century English you're reading. It really is pretty amazing. And it just kind of becomes a brain worm. It sort of just gets in there. So, (laughs) Well, it turns out that our Mr. Flowers also is a collector of old dictionaries. And so on top of reading those state court opinions, which I'm sure he has to do a lot in Ohio, um, perhaps he had found it flipping through his old dictionaries. I'm told he uses words, older words, weirder words, more obscure words, more than the rest of us. Interesting. Well, that's that's a good backdrop. Okay. Do we have more questions, observations? For sure. And I'm sorry that this is not the weightiest podcast, listeners, but... Look, it's going to get weightier. Give me a break. Okay, let's we're get just, weighty. We're getting into uh, it. All right. Okay, let's here's get weighty. A, here's a weightier one. Um, there was a suggestion in a guest essay at the New York Times. Here was the headline. Joe Biden can't save Roe v. Wade alone but he can do this. And it was written by uh, David Cohen, Greer Donnelly, and Rachel Robichet. And apologies if I'm butchering your last names. But one of their suggestions was that the federal government buy the land that is currently used by abortion clinics in the state of Texas, for instance, and then treat them like military bases or post offices, et cetera. And that would get around any state laws to the contrary. And so a reader sent this to me and said, is this true? Would this work? That is, I, I missed that. <laughs> I missed that. Now it's, it's a very interesting, in theory, if you federalize um, and you create federal abortion clinics, in the state of Texas, in theory, you're going to, they're going to operate 
outside of state, not, not just in theory. In fact, they'd operate outside of state control. Yeah, yes. I mean, very few state civil laws, some do, but not that many state civil laws apply on federal land. It's certainly not SB8 as it's currently formulated. Correct. And so their point is the Biden administration could lease federal property to abortion providers, uh, you know, allow them to, this is their suggestion, operate out of a federal office building uh, or a mobile clinic that they then you know, put onto federal land. And SB8 would no longer apply. Here's the thing, though. They say the Biden administration could do this. So they would need to take then existing federal land and move the abortion providers to that land. I do not think they could do the reverse. Well, maybe they could, but it would be much harder to do the reverse and turn the abortion clinics into federal land, like for the abortion clinics to sell their land to the federal government and then have it leased back to them. Um, that would potentially need congressional involvement, although then we get into some really crazy GSA stuff. GSA is the Government Services Administration. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, the interesting, which when you're talking about the acquisition of land, um, as 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 unfortunate, it is very unfortunate, Sarah, that this podcast did not exist when the Trump administration enacted its wall-building executive order. Because, oh my goodness, the complexity of the use of military funding, pre-already uh, pre already allocated and requisitioned military funding, then and diverting it from its, its uh, requisition purpose or its appropriated purpose into a different purpose, all possible, all highly technical, all very interesting, at least to me. But my first question is, what's your regulatory authority that you're relying upon as opposed to statutory authority, which would mean Congress getting involved? But then the other quite practical question is, all of a sudden, if let's say you're an abortion rights supporter and you have saved um, abortion rights from SB8 by federalizing abortion, and then you lose the 2024 election... <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly every single clinic is shuttered in the whole state that's been federalized. Well, that is an interesting point there. Yeah. <laughs> just immediately. They're all just closed. And because there was no affirmative obligation of the federal government to operate abortion clinics. Um, and so. No, but if they, if they signed a 50-year lease with the federal government, I don't know yeah, this would it would get complicated. And as they also point out, we're talking about how federal civil law doesn't apply on federal. Sorry, state civil law doesn't apply on federal land. Very different than state criminal law. Uh, that gets much messier as well. Um, and, but they do point out, and I think this is worth mentioning, federal law prohibits the use of federal money for abortions, something Congress could change. But a lease would not be governed by these rules because the abortion provider would be paying the federal government, not the other way around. I, I'm not sure it's quite that simple on that, but I appreciate that they flag the issue. Yeah, that that is interesting. I'm actually surprised that I missed that op-ed. Um, but yeah, that is interesting. But I, my, my the immediate answer is, one, what's your regulatory authority for that? Because it's... It is a it is a tough that that is an area of law the, the land use appropriations that you need to walk into with humility. 
<laughs> I certainly would, as we are in this podcast, by telling you that like it messy but creative. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Now that's weighty. That's good stuff, Sarah. All right. Now I've got three unweighty things. Okay. Um, one, someone wrote in and said that they were deeply disappointed that in our discussion about Navy SEALs needing the vaccine and what the compelling government interest was, that we did not refer to them as a basket of deployables. <laughs> that, that's good. That's the kind of content that gets you up in the morning right there. That's that's good. Uh, similarly, perhaps. This subject line just cracked me up. Exciting portmanteau opportunity. <laughs> when a moot has to be moved to remote, can we call it a remote? <laughs> oh, no. Now that that's about 90% short of basket of deployables, I'm sorry to say. Uh, all right. Last one along these lines. So a, another great listener of the pod, his name is uh, Wade, and Wade had emailed last year about some interesting murders that had happened where he grew up in Meridian, Mississippi. I forgot about this and then slandered Meridian, Mississippi on <laughs> our podcast, David, Ray, those Navy SEALs. And so he told me that I hurt his feelings with the disparaging comments about Meridian, Mississippi. Quote, you have no idea what you missed. Uh, now you'll never know the stories of the three foot building and the gypsy queen. I will assume your comment was made in ignorance and continue to listen. Well, thank you, Wade. I appreciate your generosity of spirit. Uh, I apologize for what I said about Meridian, Mississippi. It was unfair especially because my whole point was that I didn't move to Meridian, Mississippi to follow the Navy pilot. So how would I know how lovely Meridian, Mississippi is? Aside from the fact, again, that Wade initially emailed me about a string of murders in Meridian, Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. But against a lovely backdrop. <laughs> but against a lovely backdrop. And yep. so I told Wade this, but I'm going to tell listeners this, that um, Scott and I once took a, uh, a drive from D.C., to Texas, and I took some pictures along the way, and I have five of those photos hanging in our staircase. Hanging is actually the wrong term. They're like leaned up against the staircase, to be honest. But one of them is from Mississippi, and it's one of my very favorite ones. It's beautiful. It's of this old gas station that had clearly been shut for decades, and it's just sort of there with like grass growing all up into it. And it's super cool. And I think Mississippi is a beautiful place to drive through with very tasty food, though I still have never been to Meridian. Now, I will say this. Um, I I take a backseat to no one in my, A, my affection for Mississippi and B, my time spent there uh, other than living there. My grandmother's from Bahia, Mississippi, just south of Memphis. I asked Nancy to marry me at Bahia, Mississippi. Whoa. Spur of the moment, uh, proposal. I had no ring. We had just gone for a walk. We were literally sitting by a PVC pipe that was uh, spitting drain, uh, storm drain water into some sort of stagnant pit. And Musical at that setting, yeah, yes, it was, it was, it was lovely. In that setting, I, I just spontaneously asked her to marry me, and she said, "Did you said, get down on one knee?" No, we are sitting on the sidewalk so and you had just no it, ring. No need. I had no ring. You were just no like, need. hey, the weather's pretty nice today. Also, do you want to get married next week? 
only a little bit more serious than that. Like only a little, it was just in the flow of the conversation. It, it just flowed. <laughs> it just flowed. <laughs> it just flowed. And she sat there for a minute and she said, yeah, I'll marry you. Like that was literally, I think that was the literal quote. Yeah, I'll marry you. We now keep in mind, Sarah, we'd been dating six weeks at this point. I got to tell you, if Nate comes back and ever says, I proposed this week, I've known her for six weeks <laughs> and it just happened in the flow of the conversation. It was, I, I will remember this. I will. And I think your marriage is incredible, but <laughs> I will have questions for my son. It was a good guy. Well, I'll say this. If, if. Now, one of my kids is married, but if the other two come back and have the same story, <laughs> I'll have questions as well. But 26 years later, almost, it's a great story. Well, Wade says that if you are driving through Meridian, that you should stop and eat at Weidman's, that it is the oldest restaurant in the state of Mississippi. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Interesting. But I was going to say, beautiful is not the word I've tended to use to describe Mississippi with all do apologies. I think Mississippi is beautiful in the way that like Southern Gothic is beautiful. I mean, there are parts of Mississippi that are quite striking and beautiful, but like if I'm driving through Mississippi, I am not saying the same things about the view that I am when I'm driving through Montana. Like that. See, I think Montana can be quite sparse to be honest. All right. Well, I again, I apologize to our Mississippi <laughs> listeners, but we've got a weighty question. Okay. We've got a weighty question. So uh, this listener is in Oregon and a bill SB 197 became law effective January 1st of this year. So the law requires, it basically folds in private schools into what had previously been required for public schools around things like domestic violence, teenage dating violence, sexual assault. Um, It requires uh, private schools to have policies in place to deal with these things uh, and, and largely is amending their current public school section to just add in like also private schools, also private schools when it comes to these issues. But one of the things they require is that you have a poster up in the school. And so this listener was asking, uh, I take no issue with anything we need to teach or be doing about these important topics. I'm not pro-domestic violence or pro-sexual assault in any way, <laughs> which first of all, I love that an advisory opinions listener is curious about the law, not because of their own personal position on the underlying issue. And this is a fun thing to be curious about. So here's his actual question. Two, I'm not a lawyer, but this seems like it's unconstitutional by violating the First Amendment. I suppose making curriculum requirements is normal or common, but specifically this section three requires that private schools either use a provided poster or design their own with specific speech on it. Isn't that compelled speech? Rather, like requiring a topic to be taught to a standard, it requires specific messaging and that you hang that messaging in the classroom. He says, am I wrong on this? Happy to be told so. (laughs) Uh, And David, this is super interesting because we had talked about that, that compelled speech can seem really obvious when you're on an obvious side of that line, but this is a private organization being told by the government that they must put up certain speech in their classroom. And he, in fact, sent me uh, an example of a poster that was put up in one of these private schools. They opted clearly to make their own poster. Um, It says, stop domestic violence, 
we can help, here are the following free services, a safe shelter, advocacy, counseling. It has a 1-800 number on it uh, as a hotline. It also has a website, and then it has the organizations they have partnered with to provide this. Now, again, no question that all of the schools support this, and they're happy to put up posters. Probably a lot of them already had posters up like this. Maybe this one was one of them, but the point is now the government is compelling them to do that. Does this violate the compelled speech standard in the same way that we've been talking about how the government can't force Twitter to keep up white nationalist speech? Could the government force, could a state government force Twitter to, you know, put up as every 10th message a stop domestic violence, here's a 1-800 number message? Yeah, that's a that is very very interesting, and you know it. What's what's fascinating about this is that there are many messages that the government does require private establishments to. There, for example, if you've if you worked, uh, you know, if you've worked, gosh, I mean, virtually anywhere that has like a break room, an employee uh, at an, an employer over a certain size. What will you see hanging on the wall that nobody really ever looks at, but you'll see <laughs> various EEOC mandated or or state human rights law mandated uh, posters outlining some basic rights you might have as a worker. And I remember seeing those going all the way back to my first jobs uh, selling guns at Walmart in Georgetown, Kentucky. I mean, there's been there have been posters. Now, the interesting thing is uh, also another form of compelled speech that we've talked about is ingredients or calorie counts that you're telling a commercial establishment. You have to list your calorie counts or you have to list your ingredients. Mandatory disclosures when you're advertising pharmaceuticals, which always crack me up. I mean, they're almost beyond parody at some point. You've got some guy, here, take something, uh, you know, take Ketamax for, I just made that up, I don't even know what that is. Take Ketamax for blood pressure and live your life to the full. And then you have Ketamax may cause while you're, while you've got somebody surfing or when, you know, <laughs> always, always skydiving, paddle surfing, paddleboarding <laughs> while you talk about, you may choke to death on your own vomit, you know, like it's, and that's a kind of compelled speech. But in all of those circumstances, what you have is it's a commercial speech. And so compelling you have a commercial speaker and it's commercial speech. That's part of the, um, that was a core issue at stake in a recent Supreme Court case involving uh, pro-life crisis pregnancy centers. And the pro-life, this NIFLA, NIFLA case, pro-life crisis pregnancy centers, were they were being required to put up signs saying, here's where you can get a free or a low-cost abortion in California. Well, they're crisis pregnancy centers. This was completely contrary to their uh, messaging. They were being forced to advertise for free and low-cost abortions by the state of California. And the big issue in the case was what category of speaker was a pro-life crisis pregnancy center? Was this like asking a doctor to provide informed consent, um, mandating that a doctor provide informed consent? Or is this more like mandating a Democrats say to the Dem mandating that the Democrats say where the Republican headquarters is located? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, and the court by five four basically said, no, 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 this isn't like 
requiring a doctor who's engaged in a commercial practice to provide an informed, you know, informed consent. This is much more like ordering an activist to give the opposing point of view to the subject of their activism. And it was a close case. It was five to four. And so, Sarah, if you're on the one hand, I'm going to be required to list my ingredients and put up my uh, EEOC remedies if I'm subject to Title VII or the F, you know, FDA regulations. And on the other hand, I'm not required if I'm a private um, if I'm a private uh, entity that's not commercial, and I can't be made to put up messages that are contrary to my point of view. Where does this land in your in your thinking? Yeah, so I think this is fine. I think it's fine for a few reasons. One, I think it is not just much closer to, I think it is identical to EEOC notifications. Um, uh, also, I think it helps that nobody disagrees with this. Nobody doesn't <laughs> want to help prevent domestic violence or offer students information about what they can do to seek safety if there is violence in their home. I'm sure, again, I'm sure many of the schools already had things like this. It is more standardizing it, that it needs to be a poster of a certain size and things like that. So it helps that no one's going to complain. But I do think it's a bit of a slope when you're telling private schools what posters they need to have up in classrooms, sort of like those break rooms, there's just a ton of posters in there that nobody reads. You could see a proliferation of posters and that at some point, the proliferation itself could be compelled speech. Um, but certainly, you know, okay, so stop domestic violence, I think is clearly on one side, no problem, not compelled speech for a school because of all sorts of missions involved that is part of the state, right? They have to be accredited as a sort by the state, et cetera. On the other end of the spectrum would be a poster that says, um, evolution is real. There is no fact-based reason to believe in creationism, like in your school. Now, on the one hand, we're kind of past that as a society in terms of the debates that we're having. Although, what was it, 2012, the Republican debate? That was a question that was asked. And in some ways marked the end of when they were going to have liberal moderators ask questions of conservative candidates. Because everyone was like, why? Why are we asking this? This is not on the front of any voter's mind. But nevertheless. Um, so, but I, what I think is interesting is, again, like, could you force Twitter to put up this message? Even if it's controversial as a commercial enterprise, it is different than a calorie count, which is not related you know, calorie counts related to you serving food. I actually think the calorie count thing is questionable, by the way. The ingredients, less so. The calories, more so. Um, but on the other hand, like, I'm sure you could show that X percentage of people using Twitter are in a domestic violence situation and could really use this message. But is Twitter as a private business required to provide information to their users, not their employees? Um, I think the answer to that would be no. I think the answer to that is no as well. It's it, because, you know, one one of the things that Twitter does is that uh, it, it would be a, it would be akin to requiring the New York Times to give column inches or space, yeah. and it won't stop at domestic violence. Again, something we all very very much agree with. Want to stop Twitter again? Twitter, Facebook, all these places actually dedicate tons of money to what we would consider pro bono activities for their own uh, users. 
But if domestic violence, why not drug use? And then if not, you know, if drug use, why? And you'd end up again with the proliferation of posters, quote unquote. Right. I actually think if if somebody wanted to challenge this, it would be, in my view, a, a, an interesting case. Um, you think it would be interesting? I, mean, I do think it would be interesting. It would be interesting for them in the media, that's for sure. They would. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone's going to challenge it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's going to challenge it. But let's just putting on my my lawyer hat here. Uh, let, let's just say that somebody came to me and they said, you know what? Um, we're totally against domestic violence. We're totally against all of these things. But, you know, the the destination that we're required to point students to um, is, you know, maybe teaching things or explaining, providing them with options that we think are. Um, oh, here's one. Let, let's imagine that somebody says there it's a pro the school has a pro-life position. And the, the number says, if you call the number and say somebody's been a victim of sexual assault and they're worried that they're pregnant, they're going to point them towards an abortion clinic. Yeah, then it becomes much closer. I actually think the state of Oregon law, for what it's worth, allows you to put any, like, it just has to be a number, a hotline number. You can set it up yourself. But yes, if they mandated which hotline to call, uh, that would be yeah. potentially it's a big problem. Yeah. It's interesting, but I, it's, there's a lot of things that happen in law that just kind of happen because nobody really disagrees with them. And, and so if something's not challenged in court, you don't know, strictly speaking, whether it is or is not constitutional, but it still just is. And it's, it's, it's there. And because people comply with it, um, you know, it's, it's deemed to be binding it's perceived to be binding. And it's relatively unobjectionable and people just roll forward. And there's nothing wrong with that. We don't need to challenge everything. But I thought that was a fascinating, I thought that was a, a really interesting question. All right. Um, ending on a, a substantive but also fun note, uh, a listener I thought sent a very helpful way to think about how the concurrences, opinions, dissents could all look in the OSHA case. And he used buckets after my own heart. So, I mean, really, it just, it feels like I have um, a podcast assistant and I just so appreciate that. This podcast assistant has a PhD and is an assistant professor. So he's a little <laughs> overqualified, but nevertheless. So bucket one, Congress does not have authority under the Commerce Clause. Which justices will sign up for that understanding? Thomas? Maybe Gorsuch? Maybe. 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 Second bucket. Congress cannot delegate that authority to OSHA. Thomas Gorsuch, and then like, here's the big question, right? Alito, Kavanaugh, Barrett, like this is, um, you know, interesting. Number three, Congress did not delegate the authority to OSHA. That's the major question doctrine thing, which we think is the one of the two likely majority opinion outcomes. It's probably, I think, slightly less than 50% um, if the mandate's struck down, there'll just be a concurrence with people, but it's possible you get five votes on this. Uh, Thomas Gorsuch, Alito, Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett being the people you can pick among for major question doctrine. I do not think the chief will be in that group, but we'll see. Four, Congress did delegate this authority to OSHA, but it was not properly exercised here. Uh, and again, you still are really picking from among that six. That's the ETS authority problem. 
And that one you could get all six. But here's uh, he says that he would, of course, like it to be number one, that Congress does not have the authority under the Commerce Clause, something that really none of the advocates touched on because you don't need to reach it. If you get to Congress did not delegate this authority to OSHA, then you're done. And uh, under constitutional avoidance canons, the only way you really get to Congress did not have this authority is if you answer all of the questions leading up to that the other direction. Congress did delegate this authority to OSHA. Congress can delegate this authority to OSHA, but Congress didn't have the authority itself under the Commerce Clause. Boom. Um, But this guy says he understood why it wasn't argued really at all in the oral argument. He says it would have been hard to begin, quote, may it please the court. Schechter poultry was egregiously wrong. And so (laughs) was Wickard for that matter. And I don't have a tattoo, David. But if I were going to get one, honestly, it might say that. That that's a glorious. I mean, <laughs> that's a that's a glorious sort of fantasy opening to an oral <laughs> argument. <laughs> one disconnected from any strategic reality or tactical reality when uh, when ar- arguing before the Supreme Court. But this does raise something because after our last podcast, I went back and I looked at some of the commentary that was critical of the strategy. That was essentially, as we talked about in in the um, in our analysis of the oral argument, just win the case, win the case, um, get a stay. And the argument was, well, you should have gone for more. You should have gone for the bigger constitutional win. And the fact that you didn't explicitly go for that bigger constitutional win is evidence that you know may may mean you just don't get what you could have gotten. Okay, wishes. Your squishes. You didn't get what you and and then maybe, you know, the Supreme Court would have really reordered Commerce Clause yeah, jurisprudence. Maybe. Maybe, maybe it would have, but if you just if you just oh, asked. If only they'd asked. You know what's interesting, David, of the I forget how many petitions the court got from the Sixth Circuit. Remember, there were like a zillion cases filed and they picked two. They picked Ohio and they picked husband of the pod. Other cases did argue that. And they were silly because it's not teed up here. It's one of the reasons that Dobbs is so interesting as an abortion case, because it's hard to get a case perfectly teed up on the constitutional question that you want, but only the constitutional question that you want. Because if there's anything less than the constitutional question, they reach that one first. Here with the mandate, it's not a direct shot at Schechter or Wickard or anything else for that matter. And the people who tried to take that direct shot, well, the court didn't think it was a direct shot and they got nodded. <laughs> they didn't get their case taken. Yes. That, I mean, and so I think th- there's a couple of things in play here. One is um, I the Dobbs case, and I'm glad you brought that up. The reason why, the reason why it created a degree of energy and interest in that case, above and beyond any abortion case since Casey, is that they took a case where the law was utterly inconsistent with existing precedent. Their existing precedent has to be altered in some fundamental ways if you're going to uphold the Mississippi law. And so, and then if they just wanted to let leave the Mississippi law alone, all they I mean, or leave the lower court ruling alone, all they had to do is just not take the case. 
because the Court of Appeals had struck down the Mississippi law. So that was a very unique, that was a un, that was an unusual situation. And this is a very unique, it was unusual because it absolutely teed up the key question. And this is why, for instance, Chevron, Chevron, all these other doctrines that people want to attack, it's because it's hard to get one on Chevron, only on Chevron, where there's not some other APA problem along the way that they could think of it like, I, I, have I used my cranberry analogy on this podcast before? I think I have. That <laughs> David's face. He's like, all right, the cranberry analogy. Yeah, right, let's, so let's hear it. The way you test good cranberries and sift them from bad cranberries is you put them down this wooden hole and their slats fed into the hole and good cranberries bounce and bad cranberries don't bounce. But of course, like you're putting a lot of cranberries down at once. So you need to give the cranberries more than one opportunity. So there's like five slats, like staircase, you know, stair steps into this wooden hole. And so it gives every cranberry five chances to bounce out of the hole. But if it doesn't, it goes down the hole. Basically, if you're bringing one of these you know, you want it to be the constitutional case to get to Chevron, for instance, you've got to not bounce on any of the APA things that could get you there. And it's really hard because there's a lot of good cranberries out there. <laughs> and, and the other thing, to, yes, that, but I like it. I like it. It's good. And the other thing is, it's also easy to forget that the actual, the oral advocate and the primary brief the petitioner's brief and the respondent's brief, they are not the only briefs the court is reading. There's a lot of other people who are volleying arguments towards the court. So, for example, there's a dispute and part of the right wing legal world as to whether or not the 14th Amendment actually prohibits, should be read to prohibit abortion. In other words, that the Amer U.S. Constitution, the 14th Amendment, under its original understanding, actually prohibits abortion. Rather than being silent on abortion so that it is left to the states, that it actually protects life to such an extent that it prohibits abortion. And there's an argument about that. That is not the argument that Mississippi made to the Supreme Court. It That's not Mississippi's argument. But there are people who submitted amicus briefs to the Supreme Court making that argument. So the Supreme Court has that argument before them. And so often when you're talking about the, main, the, the litigants, the litigants are only a small part. They're, they're a, the primary part. They're, the, they're making the primary arguments. But there is a, there is, the Supreme Court is receiving a volley of legal arguments that are being submitted lawfully according to Supreme Court procedure and amicus briefs that they are reading. And if you think they don't read amicus briefs, they cite to them all the time about arguments that you may think are better arguments to make. So the chances are, if you're someone who's looking at an oral argument or reading a petitioner's brief and you have a disagreement with the strategy, unless your point of view on the strategy is fringe, 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 the odds are, if it's a mainstream uh, argument in any way, it's being made. It's been made. And so I think that a lot of this, uh, where, where you're putting a it's such enormous import on the strategic decision to try to win the case with your best argument. <laughs> um, it, it just ignores the way and the menu of, of arguments that the court actually has to choose from. And in this case, as you said, there were lots of um, amici who were raising this as well. I actually think there wouldn't have even been a concurrence on this question, but for that Sotomayor police power exchange 
maybe there will be a Thomas note about the limitations of the Commerce Clause on the federal power, as opposed to the state's ability under Jacobson or something like that. I think that's going to be as close as you get to side-eyeing Commerce Clause power, Commerce Clause power in this case. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think it's just important to bring that up, especially for our younger lawyer listeners or law student listeners, is you have to make some really uh, tough strategic questions, tough strategic choices. And, you know, one of the first things and one of the best things I was ever taught was, and this sounds so simple and and interesting. I mean, it's simple and obvious, but the the it's a simple reality that if you're not going to win with your best argument, that you're probably also not going to win with your second best argument. And uh, in addition to you just win the case, um, those are just like sort of simple tactical, um, you know, thoughts, especially in these big cause in big cause oriented litigation that people often forget because they have a policy or a legal, a jurisprudential goal in mind. And the jurisprudential goal often is not entirely served if your client just wins, but your client's happy, <laughs> your client's happy. And that's your main obligation. All right. I have one, I, I have one thing I want to end with. Last one to you. So this is, this isn't reader mail. It's just funny. Um, so <laughs> listeners, before we got on the air, if you can call starting podcasting, getting on the air, um, we were sort of going through a lamentation and that was, uh, people, um, about some of the crazy things people can do. Well, I've got one. This is coming from, uh, two LAPD officers were fired for allegedly ignoring a call regarding a robbery in progress because they were playing Pokemon go and had spotted a Snorlax. Okay, so I just want to read a little bit of the court decision in the case. And is this during peak Pokemon, which was like what roughly August of 2019, 2018? Uh, that's a really good no, this I was think. 2017. So, yeah, I think that is peak. I think that was peak Pokemon. Yeah, okay. So, people yeah, were going peak crazy Pokemon go. at that point. Yeah, so Pokemon Go, um, and I'll just, for those who don't know, and it, it's an augmented reality mobile phone game that uses a GPS to sort of capture virtual creatures, um, which appear on your phone as if they're in your real world location. People died doing this. They would like walk off cliffs and stuff at oh, its peak. Crazy. So here's some of the, here's some of the court of opinion from the facts, from the statement of facts. So five minutes after they said, these two officers said, quote, screw it regarding checking with communications about a robbery call. <laughs> Officer Mitchell alerted that, quote, Snorlax just popped up at 46th and Lemert. <laughs> after noting that Lemert doesn't go all the way to 46, Lozano responded, oh, you know what I can do? I'll go down 11th and swing up on Crenshaw. I know that way I can get to it. Mitchell suggested a different route, then told Lozano, we got four minutes. For approximately the next minute, 20 minutes, <laughs> the recording 
captured petitioners discussing Pokemon as they drove to different locations where the virtual creatures apparently appeared on their mobile phones. On their way to the Snorlax location, Officer Mitchell alerted Officer Lozano that a Tegetic or a Tegetic just popped up, noting it was on Crenshaw just south. After Mitchell apparently caught the Snorlax, exclaiming, got him, petitioners agreed to go get the Tegetic and drove off. When their, when their car stopped again, the recording, uh, recording recorded Mitchell as saying, don't run away, don't want to run away, while Lozano described how he buried it and ultra-balled the Tegetic before announcing, got him. Wow, Sarah. I mean, I'm glad they seem to have a lot of fun and camaraderie, and I'm the last person to condemn gaming, but mm, robbery calls take precedence. <laughs> robbery calls take precedence. But just reading all of that discussion, can you imagine as you're trying to defend your job and that recording coming up and how it would sound to a judge who basically knows nothing about Pokemon Go and has probably had some <laughs> clerk try to explain it to him. And then the exuberance around getting a Snorlax or a Tegetic. Not great, Bob. Not great. Not great. All right, Sarah, that ends. We went from emergency pod to hybrid Frankenstein's monster part of the pod. And now we're back to emergency close. Yes, we are living in the present again. We're living back in the present again. So, but we're going you, from- listener, have gone through an hour and a half, roughly. And I just want to note again: please look next to you, and if you think that's a bottle of lemonade, smell it, <laughs> double check, take a whiff, make sure before you douse a fire with it. And I don't know. I don't think I said this, but congratulations to Scott. That's Aww. implied from yeah. our conversation. But congratulations to him. It is a very, very, very big deal to win a case at the Supreme Court of the United States. And I know he's done it before, um, but it's it, I it's think still... this one might be, I, I, I haven't actually asked him, but I feel like this one felt more important to him. And you do still congratulate like Steph after his third title or LeBron <laughs> after his fourth. <laughs> you still do it. It's still a big deal. Yeah. So congratulations to Scott and... Uh, and listeners, thanks so much for hanging there in there with us. Uh, I, you know, I know we got deep in the weeds there on some administrative law stuff. So if you got more questions about it, shoot us questions. As you know, we read our emails. We read our emails and enjoy reading our emails. Uh, so please do email us, david at the dispatch.com, sarah at the dispatch.com. And please go rate us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please check out the dispatch.com and we will talk to you on Monday. Oh,